0: Welcome to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear. Raise your hand if this voice rings a bell. Severe
1: thunderstorms are possible from the Ohio Valley, the northern...
0: That's right. It's Willard Scott, the jovial weatherman on NBC's Today show in the 1980s and 90s. But Scott's broadcast career stretches back much further than that. Starting in 1959, he was Bozo the Clown. And fun fact, in 1963, he was the very first Ronald McDonald.
1: Introducing the world's newest, silliest, and hamburger-eatingest clown,
0: Ronald McDonald! Here he is in a commercial for a Washington, D.C. franchise of the famous hamburger chain. Now you might also recognize the other voice in this ad, the one introducing the clown.
1: Ronald, you can't be on TV and watch
0: it at the same time. That voice belongs to none other than Ed Walker, longtime host of WAMU's Big Broadcast. Walker passed away this week, just hours after his final big broadcast aired Sunday night. Willard Scott was one of Walker's best friends. Starting in the early 50s, the two men were household names on Washington Radio, and their lives have been closely intertwined ever since. Jacob Fenston spoke with Scott about his late comrade and colleague and brings us this story.
2: I meet Willard Scott at his cabin out in Virginia horse country.
0: He
1: won't bother me, <laughs> Willard and his
2: dog Henry are sitting in the living room by the fire.
1: Eddie and I would sit here and drink scotch and listen to Frank Sinatra (laughs) right in this room where we are now. And uh, the wonderful thing is he and I were friends more than anything, more than radio partners. We were
2: friends. Willard and Ed were friends for more than 65 years, so Willard has plenty of stories about Ed, like this one.
1: Well, I taught him to drive a car. Ed,
2: of course, was blind since birth.
1: Everybody was, Eddie, turn a little bit to the left. Eddie. Oh, no, no, Eddie, a little more to the right, right. Slow down, Eddie, slow down.
2: Then there was the time Ed got a call asking him to judge a beauty contest in Silver Spring. And I said, Eddie, for God's sake, do it. I said, you'll have
1: to braille all the ladies up. Be the greatest greatest thing in your career.
2: Their friendship began in 1951, aptly enough, in a radio studio. The two were students at American University. Ed and some friends had put together a little college station, WAMU.
1: So the first words that we ever spoke to each other were on the radio, on WAMU. And then, of course, last Sunday night, I listened to Eddie doing his wonderful big broadcast on WAMU. And, uh, That was a big part of his life was that radio station.
2: Sunday night's show was Ed's radio swan song. After a career spanning more than six decades, Ed listened to the pre-recorded broadcast from his assisted living facility in Maryland, while Willard listened here in the living room of his cabin in Virginia. Midway through the second hour of the program, Ed played a segment from the wildly popular daily show the two men co-hosted from 1955 to 1974.
1: Well, you may recall that Willard Scott and I had a routine on WRC radio called The Joy Boys.
3: We are the Joy Boys of radio.
1: One of our favorites was As the Worm Turns, which was based on a television soap opera, As the World Turns.
3: And now,
1: the continuing Twitter Live life story, As the Worm Turns. The story of la ha ha today in a big city hospital. The joys and heartaches, the intrigues and the involvements of big city living. I was thinking, no wonder people loved us. We were funny as hell. I mean, we really were funny. And uh, that, that particular skit was one of my favorites was, uh, uh, as the worm turns. I, I was laughing like a fool. You know, at that skit. So some, some of them were just, they were incredible.
2: And what was it like working with him? I mean, he was blind. You, I don't think, read Braille. Uh, how, did you, how did you communicate? How did you uh, make the show happen at these you know, four hours of live radio? Well,
1: one was our, our ability to work together the way we did. I knew exactly what he wanted, and he knew what I wanted for a response. We'd go in the office uh, music library for an hour before the show, have a sandwich and coffee, and jot notes down like, as the worm turns, today we're going to do the Dr. Bedpan. We're going to have the nurse come in every five minutes and say, Room 212, room 212, bedpan, please, bedpan, please. And the payoff is it's a Frenchman, Dr. Dr. Bedpan, who is needed in this room, not what you think a bedpan is for.
3: My name is Dr. Ernst Bedpan. They're paging me, and I'm trying to find room 212.
1: (laughs) That's what we did. And he would chick, 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 chick with his braille machine. He'd write the, you know, the names down, and he played all the characters. That was it. You won't want to miss tomorrow's thrilling episode as the worm
2: turns. And th- these was were years on? when there were, there was a lot going on in Washington. I mean, the 50s, 60s, and 70s. What did you riff on about what was going on in, in the city? What, how did you sort of reflect what was going on in the region? Well, number one,
1: we stayed clear of anything that was controversial because that was not our act. Our act was to be funny. We stayed clear of the other stuff, you know, because there was the the Martin Luther King was assassinated, and the city was in turmoil, and then we had the Vietnam War, which went on and on and on, you know, but we didn't even do that. And we were clean, you know, we were all, we were squeaky clean. We were Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs.
2: I mean, you, it's sort of amazing that you could work so closely together and, you know, come out of it just as good friends after working so closely together. What what do you think um, explains your your long friendship? Well, we love each other. We were devoted to each other.
1: And I always said it was nice to have a friend because you know in the broadcasting business, sometimes they don't like what you do and they'll chew you out. And sometimes, I hate to say it, but there are people who want to see you fall on your ass. And uh, when that would happen, I always had Eddie to talk to. And I could know that he was not only a confidant, but he'd give me good advice. Same thing with me. He always had me. And so we had each other. How about that? That sort of works, doesn't it?
0: (laughs) That was broadcaster Willard Scott speaking about his friend and longtime co-host Ed Walker. Walker passed away this week at age 83. Jacob Fenston produced this story. If you'd like to see a video of the Joy Boys recording their last show together, head to our website, MetroConnection.org.
4: It's quarter to three. There's no one in the place. Except you and me, so
0: set em up Joe, I got a little story. I... We turn now from the golden age of radio to the golden years of life. We have retired everything.
4: I mean, truly everything.
0: On a Tuesday night in Bethesda, Maryland, in a buzzing and humming room off the main lobby of Fox Hill, a snazzy retirement condo community, 90-something resident Sherry Migdale is praising the achievements of her fellow retirees.
3: My husband and I moved in three and a half years ago. He died a couple of years ago. But he was the Latin American guy for U.S. News and World Report. The man over there was an oceanographer with the Smithsonian, This lady was a doctor at GW and had been in Hong Kong during the Japanese occupation. Some of the women were consultants with Foreign Service in one form or another. Wives of Foreign Service officers as well as Foreign Service officers themselves.
0: And several of those Foreign Service officers are responsible for this evening's gathering. A presentation by Chuck Ford, former ambassador to Honduras.
5: I've had several occasions to provide remarks and give speeches, and I'm always recalling, I think it was Groucho Marx, who had a wonderful saying that said, I'm here to talk to you, and you're here to listen, and I trust you'll let me know if you finish your job before I finish mine. uh,
0: Ford also served as the Acting Assistant Secretary of the United States and Foreign Commercial Service at the Commerce Department. Tonight, he's visiting Fox Hill to give a talk on commercial diplomacy. Commercial
5: diplomacy is A very important part of a diplomat's toolkit in that it's American companies working together with embassies overseas to achieve a common commercial interest that is also in our national interest.
0: The lecture is part of Fox Hill's ongoing foreign affairs discussion group, coordinated by a resident who knows a little something about foreign affairs. My name is Bill Harrop. I'm a retired American career ambassador. During his 39 years with the Foreign Service, Harrop did his share of globetrotting. I was ambassador to
4: Guinea in West Africa.
0: To Kenya in East Africa.
4: The Seychelles, the Indian
0: Ocean. The Congo. And to Israel. And when he moved to Fox Hill about eight years ago, he noticed many of his fellow residents had international backgrounds too, or at least a strong interest in foreign affairs. When some of them approached him about launching a program on the topic, the Foreign Affairs Discussion Group was born.
4: We've had... About 50 speakers now in the last uh, six years.
0: Thanks to Harrop's connections and those of fellow retired Ambassador George Landau, another Fox Hill resident, those 50 speakers have run the gamut. From experts on particular places.
4: We've had people speaking on China, Afghanistan, Iran, Iraq, Japan, South Asia.
0: To experts on particular subjects.
4: We've had speakers on the law of the sea. We've had a speaker on the future of the euro, on uh, space issues, international questions to do with space.
0: Ambassador Landau, whose resume also boasts an impressive roster of countries. I served before
4: in Paraguay, in Chile, and in Venezuela. Says they strive to keep topics timely and relevant. Whenever a country has problems on the headlines, we try and get the relevant people to cover
0: the occasion. Retired attorney Jack Frankel was among those who'd initially approached Bill Harrop about starting a foreign affairs group, though Frankel originally thought residents would just discuss international current events amongst themselves.
4: Bill Clinton, some years ago, went over to North Korea to bring back a couple of American people who were detained. And I thought, oh, well, let's use that as a hook. And then right away, I uh, ran into Bill Harrop, and he says, oh, just a minute, we can do a lot better than that. And he got the ambassador to Korea.
0: The Foreign Affairs Discussion Group is one of many activities led by Fox Hill residents, from courses in American literature and Greek mythology to performances of old radio plays. But Frankel says with as many as 60 people attending the Foreign Affairs Group each month...
4: This is considered to be one, one of the prime activities at Fox Hill now.
0: Bill Harrop says much of the program's success comes from Fox Hill's location, so close to the nation's capital.
4: We've worked for 40 years in American diplomacy. We're career foreign service officers. That was our world. And so we know a great many people who share our diplomatic uh, experience and interest, and most of them live in Washington. It would be hard to do this in uh, Cedar Rapids, wouldn't it? (laughs)
0: At this point, Bill Harrop and George Landau are the only ambassadors at Fox Hill. Steve Lowe, the ambassador to Zambia and Nigeria, who also helped start the group, died a few years back.
4: We have one other Foreign Service officer who was in the public diplomacy, USIA part of Foreign Service. Uh, but we don't have any other ambassadors. However, we just acquired a widow of an ambassador. He just recently moved in. That's true. Ambassador to Ecuador.
0: And this new arrival adds to the mix of seniors eager to engage and learn. Though, as Sherry Migdale points out, this eagerness is ageless.
3: I mean, I have young friends of my daughter's who say, can I move in? No, you're too young.
0: (laughs) All right, so while they can't move in, they can drop in on the Foreign Affairs Discussion Group. The monthly gatherings are free and open to the public. Time for a break, but when we get back, with Virginia's elections around the corner, labor and minority rights groups make an unprecedented push for dozens of candidates. That and more as Metro Connection continues on WAMU 88.5. WAMU news coverage of labor and employment issues is made possible by your contributions and by Matthew Watson. I'm Rebecca Shear. Welcome back to Metro Connection. The news has been chock-a-block with coverage of the 2016 presidential race. But here in our region, we have a pretty significant election coming up next week. All 140 seats of the Virginia General Assembly are up for grabs. Thing is, polls show most voters aren't paying much attention in this off-off year. So a major challenge for politicians is getting voters to the polls at all. This year, some candidates are getting help from a new coalition of labor and minority groups. The coalition is raising money and has endorsed 27 contenders. But perhaps more significantly, the groups are deploying armies of volunteers to knock on doors. Virginia reporter Michael Pope tagged along to see how the ground game is different this year. These are just around. This is just,
6: I you don't know what the Wawa's is. Yes. Mm-hmm. That community back in there.
0: Like many coordinated campaign
5: offices, these days the Woodbridge Democratic Office is in a strip mall. The location looks like it used to be a dentist office or a job placement center. Now it's a place for campaign manager Chandler Belanca to hand out maps and scripts to union members over jelly donuts and black coffee.
7: Here are the scripts. These are a little different from what we've been using in the past. We're moving into uh, get out the vote.
5: Belanca is the campaign manager for Josh King. He's the Democrat running in a hotly contested open seat in the House of Delegates. The Republican in that race is Mark Dudenheffer, a former member of the House who's raised about twice as much money. Belanca's plan for the volunteers involves contacting carefully selected voters in Woodbridge.
7: A lot of these are going to be people that they've either previously talked to that have said, yes, I'm voting for Jeremy okay. or yes, I'm voting for Josh, or based on scoring models are, you know, super, super Democratic, but they just need that extra, like, Tuesday's election day, go vote right. kind of a thing. Okay, fine.
8: Yeah.
5: Union members Tammy Wandongware and Faye Mingo get into a car and head out into the neighborhoods of Woodbridge, a sprawling ex-urban community of single-family houses in Prince William County. Port Potomac, yes,
4: 2454.
5: It's at one of these houses where they meet voter Bob Piper.
4: Now I got one 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 thing I want to throw at you down there. It's my opinion. Yes, sir. That if they put metro down here, it wouldn't do a lot to alleviate the traffic.
6: Yes. yes.
4: So my thing is why you want to keep building these roads when all you need to do is build a track okay what's king gonna do about that nothing he's gonna try to make another road okay before they
6: can do anything i would say that we need to get them into richmond they need they will they will be they will be okay and all i get is we're working on it okay but Mm -hmm. in order for them to continue the work they need to be in the house in richmond so that's why we ask you your plan to vote on November the
5: 3rd. The reason she's asking that question is something campaign officials call vote planning. That's essentially getting people to commit on how they'll fit voting into their day. That's part of the strategy this new coalition, known as Take Action Virginia, pursued earlier this year during the primary season. All of their candidates won, and some of them were long shots. I think we saw this model be really successful in the primaries, which is why we're doing it again in the general. That's David Broder, president of SEIU Virginia 512. Broder says the level of coordination between the various groups and the economy of scale is unprecedented. Union members going out and knocking doors for candidates is not new. What's new this election cycle is the coordination that we have done with other Labor unions and uh, immigrant rights activists to target our work in a couple of very specific districts. Republicans haven't put together this kind of coalition, at least not yet. But Jeff Skelly at the University of Virginia Center for Politics says this is a trend that's not about to fade anytime soon.
3: Ever
9: since the Citizens United Supreme Court case, there has been a surge in the amount of organizing, like direct on-the-ground organizing field work from outside groups, from groups that are not directly affiliated with candidates or the political parties.
5: For labor groups like SEIU, the new rules opened up a door that had previously been shut.
9: In the case of labor groups, they couldn't use their own money to encourage non-union members to vote for specific candidates. Now they can.
5: This new strategy is about to face a major test, Election Day. In the race for House of Delegates in Prince William County, will Josh King be able to keep the seat in Democratic hands? Or will Mark Dudenhaffer, the Republican who used to represent this district, make a comeback and turn a blue seat red again? The answer to that question will mean more than who goes to Richmond. It will also spell success or failure for this particular model of political organizing. I'm Michael Pope.
0: In races all over Virginia this election season, one of the central issues is gun legislation. The Commonwealth ranks among the most gun-friendly states on the East Coast. And Democratic Governor Terry McAuliffe has made it a priority to change that, without much luck in the Republican-controlled General Assembly. Northern Virginia is home to both the National Rifle Association and an increasingly diverse population. But in this part of the state, traditional gun culture is colliding with a more liberal social mix. Karen Turner introduces us to several gun enthusiasts who buck the usual stereotypes.
10: How'd you do? Uh, pretty well, actually. Got all of them on the paper, and most of them within about a four-inch radius.
8: Adith Subramanian is shooting at the NRA range in Fairfax, Virginia.
10: So I, I would describe myself as probably the last person you'd expect to own guns. I'm a very liberal-minded person. I'm a vegan.
8: Looking around at the range, we're surrounded by the typical gun owner, white, male, middle-aged. White men make up two-thirds of all gun owners in the US but account for just a third of the total population. Subramanian does not fit this profile.
10: My parents were both born in India. Um, In India, gun ownership, it's not looked upon as a good thing. So uh, I actually grew up in a very anti-gun house.
8: Subramanian picked up guns in college, initially for sporting reasons. He bought his first gun when he was 19.
10: My experiences as a minority gun owner initially started pretty nervous. I was very intimidated initially because I, I had the, the stereotypes in my head that guns were a, you know, white, male, Republican thing to have.
8: Owning a gun also made him feel out of place among his more liberal friends.
10: I do not mention guns around them at all. Uh, I, I have before once or twice, and it's, it's usually ended with me being looked down upon for owning guns.
8: He says he now feels accepted by the gun community, but I asked if he ever feels conflicted.
10: A lot of gun owners hunt or have hunted or want to go on hunting trips. And I'm a vegan. I'm as far away from hunting as you could possibly get. It's never been an issue where I've had to stop and think like, you know, is this wrong or is this okay or does this conflict or am I being a hypocrite? They're just very separate parts
8: of my life. Subramanian says he came about his passion for guns in the same way he came about his veganism. He believes these personal choices are better for society. A gun
10: is the ultimate equalizer. So minorities, LGBTQ and women and all those fringe communities you're talking about can really benefit from firearms because they're communities where when they are attacked, no one's going in there with a fair fight.
8: That's one reason for owning a gun for John Mayer, a restaurant owner in Richmond, Virginia. I met up with him at Chefs for Equality, an event hosted by the Human Rights Campaign benefiting the LGBT community.
9: Uh, I originally bought it just for... Target shooting in the sport of guns and weapons. As a gay individual, it's always going to be, I think, helpful to have just in case things happen in, in this world.
8: Mayor says he generally feels very safe, but he can point to an incident that caused him to start carrying his firearm.
9: My now fiance and I were outside of a, a restaurant and bar. Some people drove by. We were saying goodbye. We were holding hands or something, and and they had just yelled uh, "fag" outside at the window. And for some reason, that just ignited something in, inside of me. And uh, knowing that I had the ability to respond to them and also have something there, because it was, it was multiple people, and having something that I know could, could back up who I am and, and what I say was a nice feeling to have.
8: Mayor says he's a proud gun owner with good friends in the gun community, but he also says he tends to keep quiet about his politics at the range. He describes himself as a near-socialist Democrat.
9: In my position, I just tend to stay quiet and shoot my gun and and practice what I need to do and and leave.
8: In Falls Church, Josh Karish has built a business catering to these non-traditional gun owners. I visited his gun shop, The Gun Dude, where Karish was hosting a free Friday night spaghetti dinner. It doesn't seem like your typical gun shop, with paintings by local artists hanging on the walls, couches, free coffee... The crowd is very diverse, all ages,
11: all races. We try and, and cater to folks that don't feel comfortable walking through the classic firearm store. So it really does allow for all depths and breadths to come through.
8: At the spaghetti dinner, I met people who refused to be interviewed due to their left-leaning career fields. An attendee named Gabe, who didn't want his last name used, says he likes seeing this inclusive crowd.
7: A lot of people think that gun owners just kind of stay in their house, lock their doors, kind of close people. Um, when we're, Gun owners aren't really like that. A lot of gun owners in the Northern Virginia area are kind of open people out in the public. You don't really see them until you get to an environment like this.
8: And this type of environment may be unique to Virginia. For audits, Subramanian, it feels like home.
10: It's hard to find a place that I can live where I can go to a vegan restaurant and then go shooting in the same day.
8: I'm Karen Turner.
0: At some point before age 23, roughly a third of all Americans have been to jail. And the consequences of a criminal record can affect nearly every aspect of a person's life, from finding a job to securing housing. But that could be changing in Maryland. Several laws now in effect allow people to shield particular charges from public view, such as charges for crimes that are no longer criminalized, and for certain misdemeanors, such as possession of small amounts of marijuana. As Jonna McCone tells us, the laws could affect tens of thousands of people.
12: These are gonna be painted and I'll- um, Danielle you know, I makes art. In her apartment in Northwest Baltimore, it. we're surrounded by colorful painted vases, patterned fabric, and her children's artwork. And a lot of my items are literally trash. Like, you know, I find things everywhere. Danielle, who is 37 and a mother of seven, has struggled to support her family. Over the last decade, She's worked a patchwork of jobs—as an artist, hairdresser, and baker. But her sporadic income is not by choice. After an arrest in 2002, she's had a hard time finding full-time employment.
6: I was in an abusive relationship, and during an attack, I fought back. And once the police arrived, they informed me that I would be arrested as well.
12: When the police got to the scene, Danielle and her ex-boyfriend both had minor injuries. At the time, they were each struggling with drug addiction. In the end, she was charged with
6: two separate counts of deadly weapon with the intent to injure and one second degree assault charge.
12: The deadly weapons in Danielle's possession were a lamp and the top to a glass table. She spent three days in jail before being released on bail. And though she was charged with a felony, the case never went to court and she was never convicted. Earlier this month, a set of laws went into effect, allowing people like Danielle to get those charges removed from public view. On that day, she headed to a clinic where dozens of attorneys were helping people figure out if they were eligible. I'm having my record this today. After 13 years of having a record, <sighs> Let me call them. Danielle is sparkling with anticipation.
3: Here
10: for expungement stuff. All right, here's a clipboard. and. So go ahead and fill out that information on the uh, intake for me.
12: There are hundreds of people here. Many had lined up outside starting at 6 a.m. In addition to removing non-convictions, the laws also allow the expungement of charges that are no longer criminal offenses. And people with some non-violent misdemeanors, like disorderly conduct and disturbing the peace, could have those shielded from public view with court approval. Karen Aslan is senior policy advocate at Job Opportunities Task Force. A nonprofit that works to improve job skills and incomes for low wage workers. We're hosting this clinic to ensure that individuals can come to determine this is
0: what your record looks like, this is what's eligible, this is what you need to do. Help them fill out court forms so that they can leave today and head directly to the courthouse and drop off their forms. So just ask me about
6: my income, benefits, assets, income. Are you currently employed? No. Okay. This one page on here. Uh, I guess it's just about your charges. Any information you can provide will only assist the attorney. Do not worry if you cannot recall all of the information. But I can remember very well.
12: <laughs> the clinic takes place in a large church in northwest Baltimore. Danielle walks downstairs to a room crowded with lawyers working at makeshift desks.
6: I have so much in my mind right now. I want to scream.
12: I can't believe this is going to happen today. <laughs> 13 years. <laughs> These new laws were signed by Republican Governor Larry Hogan earlier this year after being passed by the democrat controlled General Assembly. Democratic Delegate Curtis Anderson of Baltimore says they've been in the works for a few years.
1: The Second Chance Act as well as the uh, expungement of crimes that are no longer a crime, uh, put a lot of time in it. The bill failed two or three times. It's been cut down a lot, but we finally did get something passed. And then to come today and just see the faces of the people who it's going to help has re-energized me to get the rest of it done.
12: But some people at the clinic found out they were not eligible to have their records removed. As I'm interviewing Delegate Anderson, a woman in her mid-20s walks up.
6: Well, Mr. Anderson, I have a question. Um, first, First of all, thank you for sponsoring the bill. I have a master's degree. I have three degrees. I don't
12: have a job. I can't get my record expunged. The woman, India, was charged with failure to stop at a stop sign following an arrest for driving with a suspended license. She was surprised to find out that she wasn't eligible to get her record cleared today.
6: I want to have a voice for my people. I'm very educated and and I was, you know, out here in line with everybody and speaking to everybody about what you can and cannot get expunged, but they don't know
12: there's certain stuff they can't get expunged. And there are many in India's position, That's one reason Karen Aslan is planning to continue to lobby in the next legislative session. You have a
0: a whole host of other low-level misdemeanor um, offenses that should be eligible for shielding that are not. Um, You have a whole host of non-violent felony offenses. You know, possession with, with intent to distribute is the number one offense that Marylanders are arrested for.
12: That's not eligible for shielding. Expanding the scope of the laws is not something many in the business community want to see happen. Before I leave the clinic... I asked Danielle what she would say to a business owner who says the right to know someone's arrest history is important. I would say that I am not what my record says. I'm
6: an individual first. I have a lot of trade skills, talents, and attributes that would add to the uh, potential company I'm employed with, and also I have full confidence in not getting into any other trouble.
12: Danielle and others at the clinic also used it as a chance to network and meet people facing similar challenges. That's what happened in this group during a workshop on the new laws.
1: We are our own best allies, because we know what it's like to come out and get every door slammed in your face.
12: That's what
6: I've been saying for like the past three hours, that we have to stop going outside of us. It's us, right now, right here. We have a network right here that we can utilize.
12: At that workshop, Danielle gave out a few of her business cards as she told people about the art she makes and sells. For those who can't find work, they're determined they'll support one another. I'm Jonna McCone.
0: In a minute, a site-specific theater piece resurrects the women of Edgar Allan Poe. It's just ahead on Metro Connection on WAMU 88.5. Welcome back to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear. Coming up, a new book on D.C. history that proclaims the capital city the stepchild of American democracy. And a new interactive theater experience gets you up close and personal with the women in Edgar Allan Poe's life. But first... Yo
10: hacer un de
0: that's the voice of Archbishop Oscar Romero who was assassinated in 1980 during El Salvador's civil war. In his final sermon one day before his death, he urged soldiers to follow the laws of God, not the repressive government. Romero and other church leaders were among the most outspoken when it came to protesting civil rights abuses during the war. Armando Truel has been covering the rising violence in modern-day El Salvador. In this next story, he takes us inside two churches, one in El Salvador and one right here in the district, to find out how the faith community is responding.
11: The The Calvary Baptist Church has stood in Washington's Chinatown since 1862. It's a welcoming multicultural congregation. Calvary has bilingual and Spanish language masses for its Latino worshipers. This past summer, a delegation visited a sister congregation in El Salvador. For years, Calvary has been providing scholarships to poor Salvadoran children. Edgar Palacios is the associate pastor at Calvary. The people need to eat to have uh, some
6: social uh, benefit as um, health, um,
11: education. Palacios fled to the district in 1989 after being singled out for assassination by right-wing death squads in El Salvador. This happened during the civil war that ended in 1992. He says that war was a result of social injustice, and so is the ongoing violence. The
6: violence is a complex issue for me to resolve this uh, problem. It is a a process. All the sector of the society need to involve in this uh, solution.
11: There are an estimated 75,000 gang members and hundreds of thousands of gang associates in El Salvador. Palacios believes they have legitimate grievances.
6: They are victims of injustice system. They are victims of the Salvadorian society.
11: Feared and hated by many Salvadorans, the heavily tattooed, uneducated, and poor gang members can't find jobs. Over time, entire communities become trapped in the gang life.
6: They need to have will to stop this kind of uh, behavior.
11: The murders, kidnappings, and extortion that gangs engage in to control neighborhoods. He says finding alternate ways for gang members to support their families and integrate into society is the only way to stop the bloodshed. The Elim church is in Soyapango, A violent suburb of the Salvadoran capital. It's a huge hangar like structure that can accommodate 3,000 worshipers. (inaudible) Pastor Mario Vega is the head of Alim Church, the second largest evangelical church in the country.
2: In El Salvador, we are living a very difficult situation.
11: Vega also sees injustice and poverty as factors behind decades of violence.
2: The more you
11: humiliate a person, this person
2: becomes more violent.
11: Since the Civil War ended in 1992, nearly 80,000 people have been killed. That's about as many as were killed during the war. This year, more than 5,400 people have been murdered. Vega disagrees with the current government policy of police raids into gang-controlled neighborhoods.
2: The use of the violence, instead of prevent violence, produces more violence.
11: This is sound from Twitter video of a police raid this week in the capital suburb of Ayutuxtepeque. It was published on the website for La Prensa Grafica, one of the largest newspapers in the country. A police helicopter is hovering over a crime scene. It's part of a search for half a dozen gang members who allegedly murdered an 18-year-old nursing student. These raids usually end with dead gang members. This was no exception. Three were killed by police. La Prensa Grafica also published video of a local pastor who was at that rate. He's having a cell phone conversation with a frightened 19-year-old gang member. He says, listen to me, my beautiful child. The Lord is speaking on your behalf now. He'll protect your life, but you must give yourself up.
4: He tells the gang member,
11: I know there are snipers, but I ask you, do you place your faith in God? The young gang member turned himself in after a few hours. Police say he was the Palabrero, the shot-caller for a local Barrio 18 gang and was wanted in connection with three murders. Some Salvadoran churches welcome gang members who want to change their lives. Joining a church is the only way members can leave gangs alive. But this requires the blessing of a gang boss and the conversion has to be real. Those who fake it or leave without an okay are seen as traitors and can be executed. Not all churches welcome former tattooed gang members into their midst. They fear it may bring violence to the congregation from rival gangs bent on revenge. This is Pastor Vega. I am afraid about what happened in the future, and it's time to begin to work right now. I'm Armando Truel.
0: According to the man we'll meet next, if you're seeking a symbol of our nation's virtues and vices, its aspirations and realities, you
3: need look no further than Washington, D.C. There's so much in Washington history that is contemporary with what is going on in America.
0: Hence the name of Tom Lewis's new book.
3: Washington, a history of our national city.
0: And that emphasis on the word our, says the Saratoga Springs based Skidmore College professor, is intentional.
3: Because it is really a city that belongs not just to the wonderful people of Washington, but belongs or should belong to every American
0: citizen. In fact, he says, if people sometimes refer to the National Mall, where I met up with Lewis earlier this month, as the nation's front lawn. The city should be regarded
3: as the nation's front parlor.
0: I spoke with Tom Lewis on the western end of the Lincoln Memorial Reflecting Pool.
3: The same spot
0: African-American vocalist Marian Anderson gave her now legendary concert on April 9th, 1939, after the Daughters of the American Revolution forbade her from singing at Constitution Hall.
4: The nation's most impressive Easter demonstration. 75,000 mass before Lincoln Memorial to hear Marian Anderson, colored contralto, make her Capitol debut at the Great Emancipator Shrine. Refusal of the DAR to let her use their hall fanned a countrywide controversy with this great gathering as the
0: climax. It's this great gathering that Tom Lewis chose for the opening scene in his book. When he and I chatted, I began the conversation by asking him
3: why. The reason why I started the book here was that that particular concert brought together three of the themes that flow throughout the book. The lack of responsible governance in Washington, the racial issues which have always been a part of Washington's history, and finally the fact that Washington almost against some of the wishes of people in control of Washington over the years has been a symbol, a symbol of democracy and in 1939 it was growing as a symbol of democracy in the world.
0: At one point in the book when you talk about governance in the city, you refer to DC as the stepchild of American democracy?
3: Well it is a stepchild of democracy unfortunately. As we're looking out now we can see just the dome of the Capitol behind the Washington Monument and the city is governed by the 435 representatives and the 100 senators who work in that building. But unfortunately, they often do not live up to their responsibilities.
0: Early on in the book, you write that you're often asked why you wrote a book about Washington, D.C. You say flat out that, you know, I don't even live there. So, let me join the askers of that question. Why write this book?
3: That's a very uh, good question. There are a lot of reasons. I certainly had an aha moment that I was going to write about this city, and it actually occurred right where we are today. It was in the early 1980s, when Washington was a very different place, and I was staying in Chinatown and one night I couldn't sleep, and I walked the length of the mall. I walked up to the Lincoln Memorial, read Lincoln's wonderful words of the Gettysburg Address and the second inaugural. I then walked over to the Vietnam Memorial. I looked up the name of a dear friend of mine who lost his life in Vietnam. And I came out of that experience in saying, there's a book here that I want to write. I had read other books on Washington, some of them very good, but I hadn't read anything that would be the sort of book that I wanted to write. I had always had an interest in Washington, D.C. from the very beginning. My father and mother had relatives, and of course I did too, in Virginia. And we would drive down to Virginia from Philadelphia, and we'd often go through Washington. We'd stop in Washington. But then I was stunned to find out that Washington, at that time, didn't have a government. And I can remember asking my father, how could that be? But as an outsider, when I talk to people who are outside the district, they say, why are you writing about that? Their ignorance about this city would fill a vast chasm. And that's a very sad thing. And I actually hope that this book will help people to understand the city and why it's so important, not just to Washingtonians, to all Americans. You've written several books on American history now, including The
0: Hudson. I'm curious, what was especially different about this one, about bringing this one to life?
3: One of the things in the books that I've written that has always been important to me is the, the question behind them. Who are we as a people? And I've embraced that question working with a friend of mine on a a splendid documentary about the Brooklyn Bridge. I looked at that same question when I wrote a book about the interstate highway system of all things and the Hudson has that same question uh, behind it. But what makes the Washington book a little different is it's a subject that has 200 plus years of history behind it, and it gets to the heart of so many questions that are a part of our democracy, that should be a part of our democracy. How we function as a people, what rights and privileges do we get to give to people. Washington becomes the heart of America and the heart of the questions which all of us in our history have wrestled with and continue to wrestle with.
0: Tom Lewis is author of Washington, A History of Our National City. It's Halloween weekend, so before we say goodbye today, we give a nod to the scary and spooky. In Maryland, an unusual play is resurrecting the women from Edgar Allan Poe's life and work. Lauren Landau brings us this look inside the mesmeric revelations of Edgar Allan Poe, staged in a historic house few people get to visit.
13: Are you asleep? I am not asleep, but this immersive play feels like a waking dream. There's no blood, no fangs, no axe-wielding murderers popping out of closets. It's not nightmarish, just...
3: Eerie. A baby again.
13: The site specific play is staged in the Maryland Historical Society's Enoch Pratt House. The Baltimore landmark was built in 1846, just three years before Poe mysteriously died in the city.
11: Welcome
10: to. Mesmeric revelations at the Enoch Pratt House.
13: A handful of people are sandwiched between the door to the street and one that leads into the house. This vestibule is a bridge to another realm.
10: There's no set path, so please feel free to explore, touch, feel, and open your eyes and your mind to a mesmeric suggestion.
13: The show won't officially begin until all 26 audience members are inside, but the scene is already being set. Wearing a formal black dress and white apron, a housemaid greets the visitors. Would you
0: like to drop your coat?
13: Soon, the doors that line this hallway will open, revealing different rooms. Glenn Ritchie produced and directed the show.
7: All these people come in, friends and whoever, and they each go their own ways and see what they see, and then they can reconvene afterwards and compare their experiences, and everyone has a different story and everyone saw something differently.
13: Audiences might expect to see a mustachioed gentleman with jet black hair wandering the house, but Poe's not here. Instead, they meet characters from his stories and people from his life, or shadows of them.
7: There are characters who sort of vacillate between fact and fiction.
13: Take, for example, Virginia, a character inspired by Poe's wife. At just 24, she died of tuberculosis.
7: In Poe's stories, you see a lot of these women who die and come back in unusual ways, or who find some way to return from the dead or, or live beyond death. And so our Virginia actually dies and resurrects several times throughout the show and comes back differently each time. For the, love of
13: God and the play focuses on the women who are close to the author or created by him. Ritchie's co-director Susan Stroop says Poe, whose wife and mother both died young, often created images of an idyllic or beautiful death.
8: A lot of his stories, if they don't have to do with murder, definitely have to do with women who are dying or women who get buried and are not quite dead. He definitely had a little bit of an obsession with dead bodies of women.
13: Stroop says the real women from Poe's life often become footnotes relegated to the margins. She says the goal was to present these women as full, complex people, not accessories. For example, in her portrayal of Eliza, Jenna Rossman highlights the successful acting career of Poe's mother. Rossman was also part of the play's first run this spring, when it had a smaller cast and only used the first floor of the house.
8: It's, it's insane how, how the scope of this production, thinking how far we've come and how far it's evolved.
13: The building has changed too. David Ballou is Grant's manager for the Maryland Historical Society, which bought the Enoch Pratt House in the 1910s to serve as the society's headquarters.
9: Never since then, we had kind of built organically around it. Um, we have kind of consumed the whole city block.
13: With a new, modern facility right next door, the society shuttered its former headquarters. Closed to the public for more than a decade, the house sat unvisited and unused. That is, until a sold-out run of mesmeric revelations opened in March.
9: It's just brought hundreds of people to see the house for the first time. And we're really excited about that because it's hard to fundraise for a renovation if it's not on people's minds.
13: The plan is to make the Enoch Pratt House a state-of-the-art facility. Hopefully, Blue says, that multi-million dollar renovation can break ground before 2019, in time for the Society's 175th anniversary.
0: I'm Lauren Landau. The Mesmeric Revelations of Edgar Allan Poe runs through November 22nd. If you want a sneak peek, you can check out a video trailer on our website, metroconnection.org. And that's Metro Connection for this week. Our theme song, Every Little Bit Hurts, is from the album It Was Easy by Title Tracks and used with permission of the Ernest Jenning Record Company. We list all of our music at metroconnection.org, where you can also find links to our weekly podcast and to our Twitter and Facebook pages, so we can stay in touch with you all week long. I'm Rebecca Shear, and thanks for listening to Metro Connection, a production of WAMU 88.5 News.